The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain inside information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. Hello and welcome to the Mind Itself podcast. My name is John Whitbeck. I am your host and I am so excited for what we're going to talk about today. And that is the important issue of mental illness in the criminal justice system. Probably one of the top three places where we really have to worry about the way society and the law treats the mentally ill, uh, because certainly the incarceration of those that are not criminals, but in fact are mentally ill is something that we all should be concerned about. And I can't think of a better person to talk about this incredibly important topic with than my good friend, Elizabeth Lancaster, uh, family law and mental health and criminal attorney who spent 15 years in the public defender's office in a suburban DC county. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mr. Whitbeck. I'm a Thrilled to be here, and this is absolutely a topic that I am incredibly passionate about. I always like to start, Elizabeth, with a little bit of background so the listeners know who they're talking to. You've had an incredible career, very accomplished in the area of you know fighting on behalf of those that are facing the most difficult times in their life, mainly being prosecuted, getting divorced, suffering from mental illness. Sort of, you're, you're sort of a people's lawyer, sort of a consumer right. lawyer. Can you give us a good uh, synopsis of your background so everybody knows what are the things you've done throughout your career? Sure, absolutely. So I, when I went to law school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I ended up a couple different, you know, intellectual property, some legislative assistant work. And then I thought, man, I really would like to be in a courtroom. And I applied and I got a job at a public defender's office. And then probably my very first trial, I made an objection. It was sustained. And I was like, that's it. This is my life. This is the coolest thing I've ever done. I then kind of told my boss that for years I've been a soccer coach. I liked working with kids. Most attorneys will tell you they don't like working with kids. So to have somebody who had that interest, you know, they essentially gave me all of the cases. So pretty much from 2005 until 2018, I handled 95% of the delinquent cases in Loudoun County. It was a lot. It was a lot of clients, about 4,000 clients. And throughout that time, people become trial lawyers for different reasons. Some people, they like the conflict. They like the high energy of it. Some people like being a lawyer, like as a counselor, as a social worker, they're trying to help people. And some people like to change a system. You know, they, they see the broader picture and they want to change that system. For me, I think I was able to do a little bit of each. And it was very rewarding because I got to fight every day. I got to kind of help these kids in crisis, you know, get through this really traumatic experience that, you know, if you've ever been in court, uh, if you've ever been charged with something, even a speeding ticket, it can be anxiety inducing. So, and that, but then I also got to change a system, which many public defenders don't get to do. We brought in a lot of advocacy groups talking about reducing populations in detention, having alternatives to detention, alternatives to prosecution. We reduced our average daily population in our Loudoun Juvenile Detention Center uh, from 22 kids a day on average, uh, right now it's two or three. We literally saved the county millions of dollars. They had bid on a brand new 60-bed facility for detention, like back in 2006, based on like what we projected our population would be and what our need would be. 
we actually withdrew that bid and are now building a new facility that's not a detention center, but a shelter, a crisis center, a diagnostic center where families and children can come get mental health services, educational services. You know, so we not only saved all those kids from being incarcerated, saved tons of money for the community and are now giving services to people who really need them. And that has dramatically reduced recidivism. So having been able to be a part of that and see that front, me every day on the front lines of that has been really tremendous. And it really shaped how I perceive what each person can do every day if they show up every day. One of the things I love about coming into family law and mental health law is, you know, obviously as a public defender, I'm limited to a very specific group of people that I can help. You know, you have to qualify for indigency and it's only in criminal matters. And I realized, you know, there's just a much broader swath of people that need my help, anybody's help. And and so I, I moved into the, you know, family law, mental health law, special education, so that I could help that broader category of people and try to change the system all over again. What you did in your background when you were a public defender just dovetails exactly into crisis law, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yep. There's a lot of the same skills for an attorney dealing with children in crisis or juveniles in crisis and adults in crisis, especially in mental health cases. And it's, it's really tremendous uh, you know, what, you, what you've been through over the course of your career. You said you're now in private practice and you're doing family law, mental health, and special ed law. So are you still practicing in the area of criminal law along with your civil practice with your domestic relations and mental health? Absolutely. I love criminal law. It is a passion. There's a reason I did it as long as I did. You know, there is something wonderful about, you know, being kind of this underdog and going into court with the card stacked against you, you know, winning the day and high-fiving your client who really has the card stacked against them. So anybody who needs help in any capacity, I want to be able to do that. I just, you know, I was done limiting myself to that very small role. Now I want to, you know, broaden my horizons. That's great. And with all your trial experience, I'm sure that the civil clients you're representing are really benefiting from your ability. And, And, you know, that's a, as a side note, incredibly important skill, especially in domestic relations. I mean, you've got to know how to try a case. These cases are very court-based. They're probably the second highest level of litigation in terms of court appearances, uh, second only to criminal law. So having someone with your trial experience, extremely valuable, not to mention, you know, knowing how to manage a crisis in a mental health or special ed case. But Elizabeth, uh, this is a really important area, not just for talking about how you help clients and what are the things you do when you're representing clients. But it's also a very important topic to talk about how we can make things better for folks going through the, these crisis type cases. And I'm by no means advocating for dumbing down of our criminal system. And I'm, you know, I'm a law and order guy just like anybody else, but I'm also a big supporter of criminal justice reform in, in moderation. And, and some of the things that are happening in your home state of Virginia over the past couple of years have been interesting to watch. First of all, I, I look at criminal law as three phases. Number one, it's the phase of where you're in the arrest phase. Number two, it's the adjudication or the, the guilt or innocence phase of the trial. And three is the sentencing phase. And I know that's probably how most people look at it. But, but in mental health, if you're a mentally ill individual going through God forbid, a criminal process when you, when you really are, are, are sick and not a criminal, uh, those are the three areas where I feel like we could really do some good policy-wise over the course of the next few years as criminal justice reform gets some momentum behind it. Absolutely. I'll tell you, you know, and unfortunately, 
you know, at least the way it is now in Virginia, you know, or at least before people became more conscious of of this aspect of mental health and how that plays into criminality, really the only time we were able to effectively advocate about mental illness was in the sentencing phase. You know, so you're, the bell's already been rung. You're, you've been arrested, you've been detained, you've been convicted, you know, and only now I get to tell the judge, oh, by the way, you know, this person suffers from a significant issue, which, you know, may or may not have diminished their capacity to understand what they were doing. And it, and it's truly shameful. And so that it, you're right. You know, we need to be able to address mental health as an advocate at each of those phases of the proceeding. It can't just be in sentencing. Well, and what we, you and I do in our domestic relations practice, I mean, in any domestic case in the states where you and I practice, the courts consider mental health all the time in, in the adjudication of, of these cases. You know, when I'm in trial on a custody case or a divorce case, I'm probably presenting mental health evidence in almost every single case that yeah. involves children, at least, or, or even, I, I don't think there's a single case I can recall where there wasn't some aspect of mental health, even if it's just the fact that you're stressed out about the fact you're getting divorced and you're having a trial. Yeah. But in criminal cases in Virginia, up until recently, you haven't been able to use someone's mental illness in the guilt or innocence phase. Is that right? Absolutely. There is, uh, you know, as our prosecutors would often quip to us during you know, negotiations, there's no diminished capacity in Virginia. And it was like this, you know, as if, you know, the notion wasn't trying to find the root core of the issue and and coming up with an equitable resolution. It was, well, you don't have this card to play. Ha ha ha. So I, you know, you know, take that conversation somewhere else. And it has been incredibly difficult. And when you talk about that spectrum of mental illness, it's not just people who are extremely mentally ill and detached from reality. There's an entire spectrum of, of issues that can cause people to, you know, quite frankly, have diminished capacity to understand what they're doing is right or wrong or irresistible impulse. And so I'm just so grateful that we finally are generating some legislation and getting people to understand, you know, that this kind of notion of diminished capacity or this notion that mental illness plays into, you know, criminality such that it's really not to be punished as criminal behavior, I think is just tremendous. If it's done correctly and done the right way and, you know, still with an eye on public safety. One of the bills that's working its way through the Virginia legislature this session is a bill that would require judges to take certain mental health or disability considerations at different stages of, of of the criminal system. In other words, there's a currently right now, you cannot argue that someone's diminished capacity, disability, or mental illness in Virginia was the cause of their guilt or innocence. Is that right, Elizabeth? Correct. So essentially we have, um, you know, the standard, you know, you can enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, that is an affirmative plea, meaning if my client wants to plead that they are not guilty by reason of insanity, it is my burden to demonstrate that they are in fact insane. And the, that the standard that they use is so incredibly high in the sense that you have to have an organic mental illness that so significantly impacts you that you absolutely have no understanding of right from wrong and or that you're acting 100% under this irresistible impulse. And then even if you are successful in convincing a judge or a jury that you're not guilty by reason of insanity, you know, the remedy is then, you know, into a locked hospital facility and it can be for years, years and years and years. You know, I, I had a young lady who uh, entered a not guilty by reason of insanity plea with a different attorney. Uh, you know, I picked up the case for her continuing monitoring 
It was a class six felony. The max punishment in prison would have been five years, which she never would have gotten based on that type of crime. And she ended up spending, she's been in the hospital off and on for over seven years at this point. So it's not as if that's some, ooh, we're going to win by pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. And it almost requires defense attorneys to play a game of, do I assert this mental illness? Do I assert, you know, this concern about competency, you know, or do I kind of just push them through because I know they're going to get a time served misdemeanor. And that is just not the way that this, you know, from any kind of perspective, not the way that this work, this should work. This bill would actually permit the admission of evidence offered by the defendant concerning the defendant's mental condition at the time of alleged offense, which is an extremely different situation for a criminal defense attorney representing a client, isn't it? Without question. Absolutely without question. And, you know, I can, God, I can reel off off the top of my head, a hundred different cases where that would have been, you know, so incredibly helpful. You know, and, you know, one of the things that we, at least what I saw a lot in juvenile court, now I, I also represented thousands of adult clients. So I had to do the whole adult process too. But specifically with juveniles, um, what we saw were a lot of kids on the autism spectrum who have been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. And so, you know, you're talking about somebody who maybe doesn't understand boundaries the same way or doesn't react to situations the same way. And so we would go to court and you're trying to explain why Johnny thought it was okay to put his hand on someone that that's not, is not criminal action because Johnny doesn't have the capacity to understand that that's criminal action right. and being completely shut down by the prosecutor. Diminished capacity is not a defense in Virginia. And you know, it's, and you're like, well, why do you want to convict this kid? He's already got enough issues. You know, I mean, that, that aside, it's, um, it has been incredibly frustrating. So to be able to have that Avenue right. could just change so many things. Well, for a layperson, you know, who doesn't follow this stuff like nerds like you and I do, this is a an incredible watershed moment in Virginia criminal justice because there are elements of an offense, and most offenses, unless it's a what's called a strict liability crime, you have to prove that someone had the intent. Well, if suddenly you're allowed as a defense attorney to present evidence that the person's mental illness or their disability shows they didn't have that mental state required for the offense, you win on behalf of that client. Yeah. And as you just described, before that, you had to rely on the prosecutor, may or may not be sympathetic, to, and I'm not in any way attacking prosecutors, but it may or may not be sympathetic to the person's mental state. And, and certainly the, they're the victim of the crime not mm-hmm. being uh, sensitive to that. Not that they're bad people for not being sensitive, but they just may have different views and disagree with the, the, the defense attorney. But all really a defense attorney would be asking for with having a bill like this and being an advocate for a bill like this is the opportunity to present the evidence. This law would not require the judge to rubber stamp the evidence and accept it and and therefore not convict someone. It's just that you actually have the opportunity to present it, which is an incredibly different system we would be in in Virginia than we are now. Without question, you know, for sure. I, I um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, a gentleman that I had who you know, throughout his life had, um, you know, engaged in kind of these online relationships and he would be sending money, you know, he, I have a wife in Africa, I've got a wife in South America and and hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of his career, he would send to these people that he, you know, believed were his, you know, life partners and, you know, they were taking advantage of him clearly. Um, And so he got caught up in, you know, this mailing scam I got him evaluated. He certainly didn't meet that criteria of being so mentally ill that he had no idea what was going on in the world. And even the evaluator was like, look, you know, this 
gentleman, because of his issues, is specifically susceptible to online predators. And so he fell into a scam. You know, he, you know, that's the perfect case where you can make that argument that, look, this guy is not, you know, it was because of his disability, because of his mental illness issue that allowed him to be susceptible to actually be a victim of this scam. He's not this criminal perpetrator. But yet at the time, you know, that wasn't evidence I could present. And so I think he ended up taking a misdemeanor and and now has a criminal conviction on his record. And it's it's just a bit of a shame. Well, so people listening to this podcast are going to think, all right, so this is really a mental health issue. You're going to be able to present evidence of schizophrenia, depression, delusional disorder, all the kinds of things that might make someone act a certain way that makes it a criminal criminal offense. But where it may actually have an, an equal or even greater impact is in, in people with intellectual disabilities. You know, the, Absolutely. The, the explosion of autism in our society especially among boys and girls, of course, too, but especially more so among boys, has created behavioral issues in schools. And and as part of the practice you and I do in special ed, you know, so often children with autism engage in behaviors that might be considered, you know, criminal or violent or unsafe when they're just disabled. It's not because they're bad, bad children or because they have, you know, they're just misbehaving. You know, similarly, if someone is an adult with autism, what may be perceived as you know meeting the definition of a criminal offense under current Virginia law, now under this law, you actually have a fighting chance of explaining their behavior based on intellectual disability. Correct. Right? Which is an incredible step forward in, in, in reform. Do you, have you ever experienced someone with an intellectual disability, other than the, the gentleman you just talked about, any, in your practice, uh, you know, in defending folks, have you ever experienced that where someone's intellectual disability was the basis for their behavior and you weren't able to introduce that evidence? Absolutely. Without question, there is quite actually pernicious scheme that we see going on a lot, a lot where people will pick up a, a, like a homeless person or, or somebody in the, in the community that they know are, uh, you know, have lower IQ um, and, you know, hey, can you just go walk into this bank and hand them this check? And if you do that, I'm going to buy you lunch and give you a hundred dollars. And then Johnny goes into the bank and passes the the bad check. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's trying to get food and he's clearly being taken advantage of. And then anytime something bad goes wrong, those people jet. And all of a sudden, you know, here's Johnny from Baltimore in a Loudoun County bank. He's never been in Virginia in his life. You know, he's either significantly mentally ill or learning disabled, doesn't quite know what the situation is. But if you told him, hey, by the way, you know, what you were doing was illegal, that he would say, oh, God, I, don't, I didn't even know. Like, I understand the difference between right from wrong. I just didn't realize that what was happening was, you know, met this criteria. I mean, it's, I can't even tell you how many cases like that we have. It's hard. It's, it, it was really, you know, it could be emotionally draining trying to navigate that for one of those clients in particular, you know, his learning disabilities made him just right on that borderline of whether or not he was competent. And we had to actually kind of push him through competency. He was from out of state. He didn't live here. He wasn't going to get out on bond because of course, passing a bad check is a felony. And, you know, I didn't want him sitting in jail while we were trying to teach him what a judge is and what a lawyer is, you know, because he had this misdemeanor time served offer. You know, so it's, it does, it just, it creates so many problems to not have an avenue to advocate prior to sentencing. You know, uh, one of the other things that this 
a bill like this would do is give a defense attorney the ability to reach plea agreements easier. In other words, most cases, correct me if I'm wrong, are resolved by plea agreements. Without question. Right. So, and, and, and look, you know, prosecutors are not just you know, these sort of law and order robots that don't have compassion and don't no, care no. about, you know, justice versus conviction. I mean, there's plenty of prosecutors that do a phenomenal job of taking care of those cases that need to be tried and making sure that persons are held accountable for their actions. And then there's also prosecutors that do a great job of saying, well, this may not be a case that I need to go full bore and prosecute. I, I can do this. There's a better way to do this. One of the things that I do when I do criminal cases where the defendant is mentally ill is I try to convey to the prosecutor in negotiation the mental health issues that my client suffers from. And I even sometimes try to use the, the criminal system to get treatment for individuals when it's clear that they're going to be convicted. And, and there's ways to do that in Virginia, especially where you can file motions and different things and get people treated pending trial. But this particular law, if it, if it does go into effect, would allow you to do this at the guilt or innocence phase, which is an incredible change. Mm-hmm. What about the sentencing phase, Elizabeth? In other words, this bill doesn't address this evidence coming at the sentencing phase. What's the current state of the law in your home state in terms of can you put intellectual disability or mental health evidence on after someone's been convicted to try to mitigate punishment? Of course, always. And that, you know, you have to, that also requires a certain amount of delicacy in the sense that, you know, you don't want to over convince a jury or a judge, you know, that somebody's had a significant substance abuse history and a significant mental health history. And because, you know, we've tried to get treatment, 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 and that's why they're here, you know, because then the takeaway might be, you know what, we've tried and this person's not getting any better. I'm, I've got to protect society. But, you know, any attorney worth their salt should never walk into a sentencing and not have that client's complete mental health history, complete, you know, physical history, their school records, if they're on an IEP, because all of that is relevant to sentencing and all of that is relevant to asserting to the judge, you know, here's our plan to address these issues. This is why this person got into this situation. Here's how we're going to address these issues to make sure they don't uh, happen again. Um, And that can be, they're going to go to therapy and they're going to be seeing Dr. Bob down the street and they're going to start taking this medication and we can make that as part of their court order. So yeah, without question, that is something that, you know, I certainly did for the last 15 years and I would hope any other attorney is doing, but to have an ability to do that in a broader way is pretty fantastic. Before we leave this topic, I, I really hope that this passes. It, it, right now, it's not on the governor's desk, but if it does, I think it will probably be signed by the governor because after all, the genesis of this was the Virginia governor pardoned a man who had been sentenced to 50 years in prison and they reduced his sentence because at the time that he committed what is a very serious offense, he had a severe intellectual disability, mainly autism. and. Mm-hmm wasn't given the opportunity to present that evidence and the, and the governor commuted his sentence significantly. And so I think this is the ne- next logical step. I really don't want to be in a system where one man or woman who serves as our governor gets to be the only mitigating factor. This needs to be practiced throughout criminal justice and, you know, and allowing people to present this evidence. But that's just my soapbox for the day. So let me let me switch gears to a law that actually is going into effect. In fact, it will be effective July 1st, 2021. This is the Marcus Alert, which is an incredibly important step forward in 
just not just making sure that those who are mentally ill are diverted before they're even charged with criminal offense. By way of background, the Marcus Alert came from you know a 24 year old man who was mentally ill was shot and killed by Richmond police during a mental health crisis a few years ago, and the bill actually proactively establishes response teams around Virginia that are specialized in behavioral health. Your home county, Loudon, uh, Sheriff Chapman, who I think is a real leader in CIT or in other words, crisis intervention training for officers. This goes a step further actually. And starting July 1st, 2021 in Virginia, there'll be these actual crisis response teams that can be dispatched to what may otherwise have been a criminal prosecution you know, because the person's behavior meets the definition, but this is a this is an actual tr- attempt to divert from prosecution individuals with disabilities. Tell me, Elizabeth, what do you think of how important is it for us to divert people out of the criminal system into mental health crisis? And have you experienced that in your in your practice? Absolutely. As I was saying, you know, kind of in my introduction. It took 15 years of showing up every day, arguing to judges, trying to change minds, show evidence. We are wasting time and money and we're not achieving our goals when we incarcerate children and keep them in the system. If we use tools like diversion and treatment and this carrot at the end rather than a stick to have their criminal record expunged or whatever it is, you know, we are actually reducing recidivism. And in, in some ways, it's it's hard for people to wrap their mind around this notion of you know, if we treat them nice on the front end, that's actually going to prevent them from doing this again. I think most people, their natural reaction is, no, you got to whack them with a stick and whack them hard or they're never going to learn. You know, I think what we have seen, at least with, you know, juvenile justice reform and in in some ways, you know, adult justice reform, kind of this recognition after we've been studying this for years, that there is a smarter way to do this that, that saves money. And so I think, you know, especially any program that will divert people particularly adults, away from that revolving door is everything. And if it does it successfully with a mind towards public safety, you know, if you're doing it correctly, that's the way to go. As I said, you know, recidivism in Loudoun County for juveniles is way down, despite the fact that we don't lock kids up anymore. There's a reason for that. And I think what you would find if we had, say, diversion programs for young adults, you know, first-time shoplifting kind of thing, if we had the opportunity to divert somebody who's having a mental health crisis and not make them go sit in a jail cell in isolation for three days because they don't know where they are and they're freaking out. What a wonderful way to address the problem on the front end that will also lead to a drop in recidivism. That's public safety. That's public safety minded. Um, And it's also smart and it saves money. And it really just is this, you know, recognition of, you know, we kind of were doing it pretty wrong for a long time. Let's try this new way. And I will give Sheriff Chapman a lot of credit. He, as we watched in the public defender's office, how many of his deputies and Leesburg police and MWA, you know, they all got training. They got diversity training. They got, you know, CIT or, you know, crisis intervention training. And it made a huge difference. It really does. We're lucky. I'm lucky where I live um, that we have, you know, law enforcement and community base that are, that really recognize fundamentally that we need to make changes. It takes time. It takes work, but we can get there and we can increase public safety when we do it. Right. No, it's so true. One of the things that I love about this Marcus Alert, um, you know, and and it, it really is a recognition of the limitations that, you know, the police officers go into these situations. They don't know what they're getting into their own 
safety is critically important. Yep. They have training that they undergo to, to these things, but you know, look, nobody's perfect. And sometimes yep. they're going to not understand that this is a mental health issue versus a criminal issue. And this is a really incredible uh, step forward in that. Now, Elizabeth, one of the things I, I love talking about these issues, I'm passionate about them, and, and especially in the criminal system, because I really believe that they're probably, it's, it's, it's devastating to think about how many people have been in the criminal system that didn't belong there because they were sick and not evil. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and, and we've just missed so many opportunities to help those people. And of course, we're going to you know, save so many more lives and so much more, you know, just dollars, taxpayer dollars, treating yep. people versus prosecuting them. Yep. I'm interested to, to talk to you about just a couple things. What, if you could just wave your magic wand and have some changes made in criminal justice reform, what are two or three different things you'd like to see change that would be a, a step forward in making this process more fair and more equitable for those that are going through it? You know, I would say certainly for me being a practitioner in Northern Virginia, you know, one of the big things that is problematic that I see, you know, Virginia is so behind the times uh, when it comes to things like expungement. Expungement can be so critical or, you know, and I think really in any kind of social science experiment, having a benefit to your good behavior, a reward at the end of the tunnel can create incentive for good behavior. And, you know, so this idea that people after a period of time, after community service, can, you know, contributing back to their community, learning their lesson, that they can actually expunge that, I think is something that we absolutely need. You know, Virginia, it's just, it's almost impossible to get stuff expunged off your record. You know, another thing that I would like to see is more mental health services within the jail. I will tell you right now, in my 15 years, I would conservatively estimate that 45% of my clients incarcerated could have been diagnosed with a DSM-5, you know, criteria diagnosis. These folks, they need services. And, you know, there's just such a lack of, you know, now the jail's there to keep people in a certain space and to keep them alive. They're, you know, it's not a spa day, but the mental health services within the jail and making that more comprehensive, I think is is something that's desperately needed. I think lastly, Obviously, training for our law enforcement, obviously training for our, our teachers, anybody who's acting in the capacity where they have some measure of authority or control over other people, to understand kind of our implicit biases, how we perceive things. When we see somebody who maybe is on the autism spectrum and hasn't been diagnosed, you know, our, our brain kind of thinks, you know, bad kid because they're behaving in this inappropriate way. And then every time they get in trouble, it's 10 times more trouble than you know, Susie, because she doesn't act in that bad way. And, you know, our, our biases, they snowball. And then all of a sudden this child is, is labeled a bad kid or this, you know, person is labeled a bad person. So I would like to see some significant, you know, funding. And maybe it's not, maybe it's just reworking how we do things. Uh, you know, one less football stadium and one more <laughs> mental health facility. But I would like to see a lot more training in kind of mental health special education, crisis intervention for, you know, our law enforcement, our educators, anybody who is working in a capacity where they are interacting with and have authority over other people. What you said about expungement is extremely important, Elizabeth, reform. And you know, in fact, there isn't a bill in the legislature that, that passed, and I'm pretty sure the governor is going to sign it in Virginia that would actually expand the ability to get expungements. But like everything else in the Virginia legislature, it's only piecemeal. 
there really is people should not carry around that scarlet letter if you will forever when like you said rewarded for good behavior or if you know what if a law subsequently gets overturned is no longer illegal why should someone continue to have a criminal record for a law that's no longer illegal absolutely so yeah i want to close up with this the things that that criminal defense attorneys do you know I, i interned in the same public defender's office that you used to work in when i was a law student and i was kind of a completely ignorant to the way things worked and how hard public defenders work for very little pay, difficult cases, difficult clients. You just, a file gets dropped on you and you got to run to court, you know, the next day. And it really taught me a lot about how picking up a file and doing things the last minute, it taught me to think on my feet. It really trained me to be a litigator. So for all you young attorneys out there that are looking for a way to just get to know the system and be a litigator, public defender, criminal defense, prosecution is for you. I I can't stress that enough. And I've chosen to devote my career to domestic relations, mental health, and special ed. But I still occasionally do do some criminal work, especially for those that are mentally ill. And it's a a very rewarding experience. And, And Elizabeth, we owe you and those like you in the public defenders, now you're in private practice, but we owe you a debt of gratitude for the service you gave. And certainly, look forward to watching you be as passionate and effective and incredible at your job in the private sector doing family law. We're lucky to have you doing that. Uh, thank you, John. It's It's been a pleasure. And I'm just grateful that there are folks like you spreading the word, getting it out, because I think it really, it is helping people understand this intersection of mental health and criminal justice reform, you know, it is so crucially important to changing the system. So I'm so thrilled and flattered to have been a part of your show today. Let's hope those bills in Virginia pass. Elizabeth, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you and talk to you about what you talked about on the show, your serv- the services you provide, everything, what's, what's a uh, phone number for you and an email address? You can always reach me at 703-777-1795 or E-Lancaster, that's E-L-A-N-C-A-S. T-E-R at W-B-Laws, W-B-L-A-W-S dot com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us and I hope to have you back soon. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.